Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hello, listeners. We've got a very special interview for you this episode. Normally, each episode of Stop the Killing, we find ourselves trawling through the loss and devastation caused in the aftermath of a mass shooting. But this episode, we have a sliding doors story with a different ending. So here is a question. How many of us would know what to do if we found ourselves to be the only person between an armed 14-year-old and a school full of children? My name is Molly Hudgens, and I'm a school counselor at Sycamore Middle School in Pleasant View, Tennessee. Molly is also a recipient of the Medal of Honor for a single act of bravery that will leave you both speechless and in awe. And perhaps asking yourself, would I know what to do if I was in Molly's shoes? How are you, Molly? It's so nice to meet you in person. Well, it's nice to meet you all too. I am hot off of bus duty, so I'm great. (laughs) How are the kids this morning? They're great. I have bus duty, which I just mentioned. And so I get to see the majority of them when they come in in the mornings. And our other counselor, Matthew, and our SRO, Monica, they are always out front with me. So it's just a good way for us to kind of gauge how things are going. And sometimes you can catch kids having a rough morning and talk to them before they even get in the door. And that helps. So uh, we love that. I I complain about it, but only because it's 28 here this morning. (laughs) And I didn't have my gloves. I have been here at Sycamore Middle School since I graduated from college. I started here at the age of 21, and I am 45. So this has been um, my only job. I was a teacher here for eight years before I transitioned to the counseling department in 2006. So I had been in our school system and in our school for 18 years when this incident happened. So one of the most interesting parts of this story is that my first year here at Sycamore was the 98-99 school year when the school shooting happened at Columbine. And for reasons I didn't really understand at the time, I became very interested in studying mass shootings on school campuses. So I spent 10 years from 1999 to 2009. I read every publication that was written on mass shootings in our country. And so we in our county did not have a crisis plan. We had nothing like that. And our principal told me I could write one. I also took all the information from the training and I had a PowerPoint that is probably about 600 slides long. And I traveled all over Tennessee doing this training for free. And it was an in-depth psychological analysis of 32 school shooters. And I did all of that leading up to to this happening to me. So you can imagine how I believe it was divine intervention because one month before this incident happened, this was August of 2016, 
I got to do that training. It was called Recognizing Red Flags, an Educator's Role in Preventing School Violence. And I got to do that in uh, Memphis for all of the juvenile probation officers and juvenile court judges in the state of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So a month later, when this incident happened, every law enforcement person, every juvenile probation officer, and every juvenile court judge connected to this story had been through my training. So they knew me already. Wow. And they were like, that's that woman who just did a training on, you know, mass shootings. And this happened to her. So you can imagine how, you know, I just, I felt like I had 18 years of preparation. But for me, I don't know. I just had to do it. And then all of a sudden on September 28th, I knew why. It was September 28th of 2016. It was a Wednesday morning. By the time I got into my office, somewhere around 7.30, he came into my office. And when I saw him, the first thing I thought was, you're back. Because I had just seen him the Friday before. But that, again, is another beautiful part of the story is that I had a young man who came to me the Friday before and said, Miss Hudgens, I've got this friend I think you need to talk to. And he said, he's going to be really upset with me that I've told you that, I, you know, these things. And I said, well, listen, you don't worry about that. I will get him down here under the guise of talking about his grades or something. But what are you worried about? And he told me, you know, I feel like he's just got a lot of things going on in his life right now. And he, he talked to him about his grades. He talked about a relationship that the young man had been in that he thought was possibly failing. And he said to me, you know, Miss Hudgens at lunch, he was kind of playing with his watch and he's got like some cuts under his watch band. And immediately my radar went way up. Cutting is not uncommon in middle and high school, but we see that predominantly with females. That is not something we see very often with males. And so immediately I thought, I've got to talk to this kid. So on Friday, the week before this incident, I call this kid in hoping that I would be able to see these cuts and start a conversation, but I never did. Because as we started talking, he started just pouring out his heart. And he talked to me that Friday for the better part of 45 minutes. It was an entire class period. And I never keep kids that long. You know, in school counseling world, we're brief counselors, but he had a lot to say. And I found myself listening and taking notes. One of the things that really stuck out to me was the fact that the majority of what he was telling me, I knew it was not possible for it to be true. But I also knew that he believed it himself and that he quite possibly and probably believed that I believed it as well. So I was more captured by that. At the end, I said, I'm going to have to interrupt you, but let's meet again next week and talk. And he was willing to come back and talk. So when he showed up that Wednesday morning on the 28th, my assumption was he wanted to continue talking. And I, I'm ashamed to say that I did feel kind of annoyed. I thought, what else can you have to tell me? You know, we talked so much on Friday, but we agreed to meet later that morning at 1030. And so I went on about my day and I had actually come back to my office and was eating breakfast when he came back again. He said, I can't wait to talk to you. Can I talk to you now? And I said, sure. I said, go on over. I'll be, I'm coming right behind you. So I was literally like forking down my last bites of breakfast, dropping the plate in the sink, coming in my office. I remember closing the door behind me. And the only exit from where I'm sitting is directly across from me. So I walked around my desk here, sat down, never had any sense of anything being wrong. 
But very shortly into the conversation, I realized it was. I noticed my heart rate started to increase to the point that my blood was pounding in my ears. At one point, I felt like somebody took something warm and just poured it on top of my head and it was like running down my body. And I remember thinking, don't faint. I remember just thinking, what's wrong with me? But he was nervous. And he started asking me this series of questions that were all if-then questions. If I do this, what will you do? And I remember at some point during this just thinking, he's got a gun. And immediately it struck me that I was going to have to put myself in a subservient position. He was going to have to feel as if he was in control. And all of this is before I've ever seen any type of weapon. So I start trying to make him comfortable. And all the while, I'm thinking frantically, if there's a gun, can I get it? If I get it, what am I going to do with it? Can I unload it into the ceiling? You know, I'm thinking, no, this building has a steel roof. It was built in 1978. I had read enough about the trajectory of bullets inside of an enclosed space that I knew in this room that is all brick blocks that the odds of somebody getting injured was very good chance of that happening. So my goal became, if he has a weapon, I have to get it and I have to figure out what to do. And the whole time I'm very aware that the only thing separating him from victims is three doors, two of which are unlocked because they're to the counseling department. And so my mind is going in all these directions. And the whole time I'm also trying to be super focused on what he's saying and engage him in conversation. So He at one point tells me that he's got something to tell me that he doesn't think anybody's ever told me before. And that's when I knew. And I I, I remember just this anger rising up and me thinking, not my school. I will kill you before you kill another child in this building. And I had never thought about harming somebody in my life, still haven't. But I knew that I was not going to let any of our kids be hurt if I could possibly help it. But there was also that part of me that was like, I knew that every mass shooter, before they are homicidal or suicidal, and I wanted him to come out of this too. And so my whole approach began to be that I had to immerse myself completely in his reality because reality is only about perspective. It it doesn't matter what you think or what I think. It only matters what we are experiencing, what we are living. So when he... Um, started to unzip his jacket. He stuck his hand inside his pocket and he started to tap on something. And I guess there's, I don't know, enough of something in me that I just said, you know, what are you tapping on? And I remember him saying it was a pencil box and I knew he was lying, but I wasn't going to push for that. I wanted him in his own time to reveal that. And plus it gave me more time to think about what I was going to do. And so we continued talking some, and then finally he withdrew the gun And he laid it on the desk right across from me where I'm sitting here. He reached into his outer pocket and he pulled out an additional magazine of ammunition and stood it up beside it. I remember trying to count the number of bullets because I'm trying to determine how armed he is. He pulls out from another pocket a holster type of thing that would have allowed him to attach that additional magazine to his ankle. So as soon as he laid all that on my desk, I I kind of slid my push back my chair and I remember standing up and I kind of leaned over and I put my hands out and I said, honey, why don't you let me take that? And then we'll talk about what's going on. And the second that I touched the gun, he yanked it all away. He shoved the ammunition back into his pocket and he held the gun in his left hand pointed down the floor. And I remember instantly thinking he's right-handed. 
So if he's going to have to shoot me, he's going to have to do it with his non-dominant hand. So with my hands raised, I remember thinking all these things, relinquish control, make him feel as if he has power, lower yourself. Your goal is to lower his emotions. You know, this is a situation where he already has the victims that he wants. He has the means of committing this. You have to lower the emotions. So I walked around my desk and I got down on my knees beside him. I remember thinking that he would be physically higher than me, giving him the idea that he had more control. It would also put me in a position where I'm closer to him physically. So if this became something physical, I would hopefully have an advantage um, that I could flip the chair, that I could possibly go for the gun. I knew that if I did that and I missed, he'd kill me because every bit of trust that we had established would be gone. And I, I still couldn't believe this was actually happening to me. And so at the same time, I'm trying to stay very present, very focused on what he is saying. I remember reaching over and putting my left hand on his right shoulder. And then reaching over with my right hand and just interlacing the fingers of my right hand with his right hand. Because again, I knew if he's going to shoot me, it's going to have to be with the other hand. And so I remember just saying, honey, let's talk about what's going on. And he poured it out and I listened and I tried to, with everything he said, think about the fact that even though some of what he believed was not true, my goal had to be to protect him. And to protect all of them. And I just wanted to go home at the end of the day. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection? because it was digital, or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal, because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses, and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game, or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. And so I remember just engaging in conversation, trying to talk about anything and everything. Sometimes he was very quiet and very calm. Other times he was very frustrated and agitated. Sometimes he teetered on what I would consider to have been angry. Those times were terrifying. I, in the meantime, this a class period has ended. This kids start to change classes in the hallway. 
I can hear the locker door slamming. Right behind this wall behind me is the girls' restroom. You could hear the toilets flushing. You could hear teachers talking in the hallway. People start coming into the counseling department. And I am praying, please do not let anybody come in this room. And he looks at me and he says, Miss Hedges, I came to you because I think you're the only person that can talk me out of this. And to this day, that is my greatest, not only professional, but personal compliment. And I said, well, then let's talk. Let's talk about it. He knew he'd already committed a felony by bringing a gun on the school campus. He felt like he had no way out. He talked to me about how he thought I was a good person, but he wasn't a good person. And I, I pounded away at what a good person he was. I tried to really refocus him on the fact that he had not yet committed a crime that could not be forgiven. And so in the middle of us talking, I'm hugely aware of how much time is passing. It took seven minutes for that break between classes to end. I was relieved when the hallways were quiet again. At one point, our other counselor, Glenn, came to the door and looked in at me and I wouldn't make eye contact with him. I was afraid if I did, he would recognize something was not right and he might come in. I feared that would then make him the first victim. We later realized from standing outside the door looking in that the placement of the furniture covered his left hand. You would have never known that he had a gun. It just looked like I was on my knees beside this kid, which would have been uncommon for me to do. But Glenn said, I thought you were praying with him. And he said, I thought, Lord, she's going to be in trouble, but (laughs) whatever. So he just left me, which is um, exactly what I prayed for. I was trying to create this setting in which he would feel comfortable enough to give me the gun. And so... At one point, because so much time is passing, I said to him, honey, I don't know what it is, but I know that God has a purpose for your life. And I remember he stiffened in his seat and he looked down at me and he said, Miss Hudgens, do you believe in God? And I remember my heart like sank into my stomach and I thought, oh, Molly, why did you say that? And I thought about Valine Schnurr. She was a student at Columbine who was confronted by one of the gunmen. And when she was asked if she believed in God, she told him yes, because that's the way my parents raised me. And and she was shot. And I remember thinking, that kid got it right. That 18-year-old girl got it right. And if this is it for me, if I'm going to die today, then I'm not going to deny the Lord. And so I just looked at the kid and I said, the first thing that came into my head, I said, well, honey, um, I, I do, but I feel like maybe you don't. You know, is there a reason that you don't? And he told me, Miss Hudgens, I've asked for help many times, and I feel like God has never given me any. And I said, Well, what do you think this is? I said, You know, maybe God wasn't telling you no. Maybe He was just telling you to wait for me. And I said, I don't know what we're going to do, but I promise you two things. Number one, I will not leave you. And number two, we will figure it out. And then I thought, He mentioned God. And, and I thought, if I pray with him, I could lose my job. And then I thought, if you don't, you might lose your life. <laughs> and so I just said, honey, you know, you mentioned God. Would it, um, would it be okay? Like maybe if we prayed about this, you know, for some direction. I was expecting him to say, no, he didn't want to do that. But he said, I guess that would be okay. And I will tell you all, I prayed the most heartfelt prayer of my life. You talk about pounding the throne of grace. And the the beautiful part of it was that because I had met with him the week before, I knew all these things about him. And so I was able to pray that, Lord, thank you for bringing him here. Thank you for making him a good friend. 
thank you for his love of music and his artistic ability, like all these things, because I wanted to remind him in this prayer too, how much he had to offer, that this wasn't over for him. The whole time I am crying, tears are running in my face. He's crying. I had my eyes open because I was afraid to close them, quite frankly. I remember in one moment, he raised the gun up and I thought, I thought he was going to shoot himself. And I remember thinking, can you live with that, Molly? Can you live with that? And I was like, I can't. <laughs> so I reached my hand out. I don't know what I was going to do. I don't know if I was going to, I don't know if I was going to try to just lower his hand or touch the gun or what. But when he raised it all the way to the top, he scratched the middle of his head with his finger. And I mean, still with the gun in his hand and the finger on the trigger and then put the gun back down. And I remember thinking, oh, that is not funny. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, just thinking sometimes in the middle of something like of a crisis, you are gifted with these tiny bits of like comedic relief. <laughs> and so when the prayer was over, he seemed more relaxed. I had asked him many times for the gun. Every time he would just say, Miss Hodgins, I want to give it to you, but I just don't think I can. And that time I said, well, listen, why don't you let me take it? And then you don't have to give it to me. And he said, I think that would be okay. Because he believed that if he didn't come here and harm people, that great harm was going to come to his family. And so it was important to me that he understand that by me taking this gun, he was not giving them up. And so when I leaned over to take it, he just put his arms around me and I put my arms around him. And I knew then that the gun was fully loaded because it was so heavy. I think I had still been hoping in my heart because I could not see the base of it, that maybe the only magazine he had was the one that he had shown me on my desk, but it was not. The gun was fully loaded. There was a bullet in the chamber and he put his arms around me. I remember hugging him and thinking, just hold him like he's yours, Molly. Just hold him like he's yours and tell him I loved him. And how proud of him I was and that I always would be, that he had done the right thing. I remember saying the right thing is never easy, but it's still the right thing. And at the same time, being consciously aware that I had never read of a school shooter with only one weapon. So I am hugging him. And at the same time, I felt like I'm patting him. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't know if there were other weapons or not. But to me, this was still like a, a red alert heightened situation. So I walked back around my desk. I had two filing cabinets back here in the corner and I unlocked the filing cabinet. And I remember like pushing my purse down to put the gun on top of it and thinking, I I have a loaded gun in a public school and I'm putting it on top of my purse and locking it in a filing cabinet. And then I walked around and sat beside him and we started talking again. And we talked for a long time about what to do. I convinced him that I had a friend in law enforcement that I felt like could help his family and that we needed to do that. That was urgent. He told me it was okay with him if I called him. So I called Chris. The kids knew him as Officer Gilmore, but he was our SRO. So I called him. He was here on campus. When he answered the phone, he was meeting with some parents and I did not want to tell him over the phone, what was going on, because I still thought that the child might be armed. And so I said to him, could you please come down to my office? I need to talk with you about something that's pretty urgent. 
And he assured me that as soon as he was finished with this meeting with the parents, he would come down. And so I waited a few minutes and I thought he's not coming. So I asked the child if I could send a text message to my husband to let him know that Bradley had baseball practice after school. And the text message I sent was really to Chris. And it said, I've just taken a loaded gun off of a child in my office. It's locked in my cabinet. He doesn't know I've contacted you. Please come quickly. And I watched the screen fade to black. If you're enjoying Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims... Subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Now I'm past plan A and I'm past plan B and there's nobody here. And I remember getting on our student management system and going through every missing assignment this kid had with him, just trying to buy time. And finally, he said, Miss Hedges, I don't think he's going to come down. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, let me try one more call. And I called our assistant principal, Robin Miller. My intention was to have a conversation on my end that would make no sense on hers. And I knew that she would know something was not right. But when I called her office, Chris answered the phone and I said, hey, you know, I'm waiting on you to come down. I sent you a message earlier today about the drug assembly we have on Friday. And I said, can you see if you got that? And Chris checked his messages. He said, Molly, I don't have anything from you. 
and I thought it didn't go through. And then on the phone with him, he says, hang on a second. You're not going to believe this. I just got a text message from you. And I hear him read. I had just taken a loaded gun and he gets through the first, not even first sentence. And he says, I want you to stay on the phone and I'm going to be there in just a minute. And I remember when I saw his face at that door. Oh my goodness. It was like, you know, um, I hadn't been alone because the Lord had been with me. But then Chris was too. And he came in and he conducted the most gracious interview with this young man. He allowed me to stay the whole time. He did not have any other weapons. He was very forthcoming with Chris. They were able to take him out of the building that day. And I stayed behind, wrote an entire statement for the police of what had happened. I went to bus duty. I went to baseball practice and I went to church. And the next morning I came back to work. And I didn't know that they were going to hold a press conference. I did not know I was going to be named in that. But when that happened, it must have been a slow news day because we were contacted within 45 minutes by many of the national syndicates who wanted me to go on and speak. But see, what I knew was that every time that there is a mass shooting and it gets national attention, what follows quickly on the heels of it is another one, which in many cases has been worse. And I refused for us to be a catalyst for a shooting. So I denied every media opportunity. And when I realized that one of those syndicates had threatened to write the story and go with it themselves, I made the decision to do something a little different. I asked our director of schools if I could make a video here in my office and post it online. I wanted people to see me. I wanted parents to know that if I felt safe coming to school, that their kids needed to be able to. And so that's what we did. And the video went viral and the media went away. And my goal was to protect this kid. He had done exactly what I asked the kids to do the day before in classroom guidance when I told them. Sometimes there may be someone who is struggling and they may need help. And they may be afraid to ask for it. And you have to stand in the gap for them. And then I told the kids, but you know, what if that person is you and there's nobody there to help you? You have to stand in the gap for yourself. And I had told them, it doesn't matter what it is. You come to me and we will figure it out. We will figure it out. There is nothing too big that we cannot find a solution. So... On Friday, after this happened on Wednesday, one of our eighth graders had come to me and said, Miss Hudgens, are you guys going to talk to us about this? Are y'all just going to like sweep it under the rug and act like it never happened? And so I brought them all together, all 200 eighth graders. And I stood on a chair, I think, in our cafeteria. And I said, I'm not going to leave here. So you ask me every question you want an answer to. And I told him, nobody knows the truth but me and, and him. And he's unavailable for consultation. <laughs> And so they asked questions for 45 minutes. And at the end, I said to them, we are going to close ranks. I told them, eventually, you all will figure out who this person is. And we're going to protect them. You can talk about this at school to me. You can talk about to your teachers. You can talk about to your friends. You can talk about to your family. But we are not going to talk about this in social media. We're not going to talk about it online. Because he did exactly what I asked you all to do. He did what was right. And we're going to protect him. And they did five years later, and his name has never been released. Everybody always wants to know what happened to him. I prayed hard that I would not have to testify against him because I was on his side. And so I was subpoenaed anyway. The judge saw me and he knew 
I was the person who had just done that training he had been to three weeks earlier. And so he asked me to come to his chambers and I got to meet with the prosecutor and the defense attorney. And he said, Molly, will you tell him what happened in your office? And I reenacted it. I guess I needed to tell it. I walked around and got down on my knees beside the prosecutor and held the woman's hand. And at the end of it, they understood that this wasn't something to prosecute or defend. This was a child who needed help. And I remember because I had had this training, they recognized me not just as a victim, but as a person with a professional opinion. And maybe I dare say an expert at this point. You can read all you want to. But until you can use that information to change the course of an incident, I don't know that you can ever say you're an expert. I still don't think I am, but I think they saw it that way. I said to them, we have to set a precedent by what we do here. I want our county, our little bitty county in the middle of rural nowhere to get it right. And we did. And so uh, he did not go to jail, fought hard for that fought very hard for that. He was in a facility where he went for mental health counseling for almost four years. The day of the fourth anniversary, I got contacted by um, a person in our community who owned a business. And the lady said, Molly, we have gotten a job application for this young man. And she only knew who he was because she had been connected to our school at one point. And she said to me, we're considering hiring him. And I want to know what you think about that. And I said, I prayed every day that he would get a second chance. And I said, I think it's wonderful, you know, that on the fourth anniversary, I can say that I'm a reference for him to get a job. And so he did. Because nobody knew who he was, the media didn't traumatize his family. They weren't camped out on their lawn. They never spoke to anyone. So they never had to leave. And so he was able to come back home and come back to his family. He was able to graduate from high school while he was there and start college courses and I have not spoken to him. I made the decision that I would allow him to reach out to me if he ever wanted to. And if he didn't, that I would respect that. So I did, through a request of his, send him a copy of the book. He wanted to read it. The last chapter is pretty much for him anyway. I wrote it in everything I ever wanted to say to him. Uh, Again, about how proud I was of him and that I had promised him I would see this through to the end. And I told him, I will be here the rest of your life. If you ever want to talk, I will be here for that. And if you don't, I will respect that. So what a gift, right? You know, here I am. I get to keep my job. I get to tell this beautiful story. This kid gets a second chance and all of our kids are safe. I get just as angry telling this story every time as I did that day because something rose up inside me and I said, not my school not my school. I remember thinking, you're not going to leave this room. And I knew what that meant. You know, there's the possibility that I might lose my life in the process, but I sure was not going to sit somewhere after this was over and tell somebody's parent. I was paralyzed by fear and couldn't leave my desk. It was never going to be that. When those eighth graders uh, who were part of this class graduated from high school in May of this year, I got to sit up on a hill overlooking the football field and realized that they were all there. (laughs) They were all present. We didn't lose any of them. All of them made it to graduation. And that was huge for me. You know, what a gift, not, not just for their families and for their community, but for me, what stands out the most was I wanted to save all of them, 
but I wanted to save him too. I had always believed, particularly in looking in depth at specific school shooters, if I could have had five minutes, could I have found that? Could I have seen that? And I remember that day with that young man sitting right across his desk from me. I remember thinking, well, Molly, here's your five minutes. And I got nodding. <laughs> this is just the, the blatant truth. The problem is that the focus is on, as a country, and probably as a world, we can't see the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Because behind every act of violence is a person who yeah. feels as if they have no hope. That is all it is. And if we can find them, while they still have a little bit of it left, we can build on that. There's so much money that's funneled into all these different avenues to try to protect us. And I appreciate the efforts of people who are passionate. But I always say, if you have a place to put money, put it into people, provide more mental health professionals, put more counselors in schools, put people who are just available to listen. And honestly, you don't have to have two college degrees to be a good listener. Sometimes kids and even people just need to know somebody is sitting there on the other side of the table who is listening, who really hears them, even if they can't do anything to change their situation. I tell kids all the time, you are not going to sink. I will hold on until you can swim yourself. And And of all the things I'm proud of, I'm probably proudest of the fact that of all the schools in our county, ours is the only one that's never had a suicide. And I think it's because I'm pretty forceful of talk, about talking about things like this and saying, you know, I, I see that you're hurting, but taking your life is not an option. We're going to fight through this. You're not by yourself. We're going to walk through this fire. And when you get on the other side of it and you look back, you're going to be so proud of what you have done. So I guess what I hope that people get from this message when they hear it is I hope that there's somebody listening to it who doesn't think there's they have any hope left. They need to know that they do. You know, keep asking for it. Even if you go to one person, they can't help you. Go to another one. Keep asking until you come to someone who finally gives you just a piece of what you need to start rebuilding yourself. Because hope has to come from within. But it doesn't mean that we can't help provide it. That is my hope every time I share this. I'm going to meet with kids the rest of the day after I finish talking to you guys. And I just tell myself, Every person that I encounter in this life from now on, there is a reason. It is not happenstance. So I never get on an elevator and not speak to the people in it. And I never take an Uber or a Lyft and not speak to the driver. Because there's a reason that we're supposed to be in the same place at the same time. And what if they need just that one drop? You know, what if they just need that one person to say their name or to recognize that they're alive? And that is such a small thing that everybody can do that is such a big gift. Well, I think you'll agree that Molly's story is quite phenomenal. In fact, I've been editing this story in floods of tears, so I think it's time to take a break. And next week, we'll come back to Molly's story with an episode where Catherine and I will be getting answers to so many of the questions that I'm sure you, our listeners, are brimming with just as much as we are. And if you can't wait to hear more from Molly Hutchins, you can find a link to her gripping book, Saving Sycamore, The School Shooting That Never Happened, in the show notes. And in the meantime, if you want to see the full interview, you can find it, as usual, on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash stop the killing, where along with exclusive access to bonus content, 
you can access the episodes ad-free. And just a note that as annoying as the ads are in podcasts, it is often the only way that independent podcasters like Catherine and I can fund the production of our podcasts. So please, next time you want to skip past an ad, remember that it means we will have less funds for content creation or even better, just become a Patreon member. That regular support means the world to us. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you're up to date on Stop the Killing episodes, we'll be dropping trailers to some of the brilliant true crime podcasts that were with us on Podcast Row at CrimeCon this year, starting with this one. Do you wait patiently every week for Netflix to drop its latest true crime offering? Do your suggested videos on YouTube look like a top 10 countdown of the most unbelievable crime cases? Well, you are among friends. What's Up Doc, the true crime documentary podcast, is a bi-weekly show hosted by me, Gemma Delaney. Don't forget to subscribe to hear all about the best and latest true crime documentaries out there. And you can find us at What's Up Doc podcast on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. What's Up Doc, the true crime documentary podcast. Season four is out now. Let me tell you what's up. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. 
You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.